This is History West Midlands. For almost 150 years, the Worcestershire village of Powick was home to the county's hospital for mental illness. It reached the height of its importance during the First World War, as the trauma, anxiety and grief resulting from the war affected large numbers of people at home. As part of the Worcestershire World War 100 project, supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, historian Sarah Ganderton discusses the archive of the George Marshall Medical Museum and the Worcestershire Archive and Archaeology Service to reveal the previously untold stories of the people who lived and sometimes died in the Powick Hospital. She spoke to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Sarah, can I begin by asking you what brought you to this subject of the impact of the First World War on the civilian population here in Worcestershire? Yes, so previously I've done research on medical social history based at the infirmary in Worcester, and I did that for my undergraduate dissertation And I enjoyed that so much that I then went on to do a master's in local history at Birmingham. And while I was doing that, the opportunity came up at the George Marshall Medical Museum to look at the POIC records. So that's the local mental hospital in Worcestershire. And it was an opportunity to look at the patients' records to learn more about the actual patients, which I thought was really interesting. When the war broke out in 1914... Poic was already a well-established mental institution. Could you give us just a brief introduction to its history? Yes, it was built in 1852. When it was originally opened, it was only big enough for about 200 patients. So it was extended and expanded in the years between so that it was eventually big enough for about 1,000 patients by the time the war came. And during the war, 1,300 people were there in its peak. It was staffed by local people, and most of the patients there were from Worcestershire. Was it established by a local organisation, or was it part of a national scheme? It was a committee set up when it became mandatory for counties to have their own county asylum, That came into force in 1845, and it took them seven years of deliberation to finally decide to build a hospital in Worcester. Originally, they tried to look at sharing facilities with other counties, but they were a bit slow about it, so several of the surrounding counties had already done that by the time they thought they'd like to do that. Were there many such institutions then dotted all over the country? There were county asylums all over the country. By the time the war broke out, there were 97 for 140,000 notified insane persons. And with the advent of war, were they then nationally organised or did they still continue to work independently? 
They still worked independently until the National Health Service came along. But during the war, the Board of Control took more control. This had been instated in 1913, so before any mention of war. But there'd been amendments to the way that asylums were run. And this national body was in charge of the running of asylums at that point. Can you describe for us what the environment of the hospital was like at that time? Because obviously those of us who really don't know picture this grim building with rows of beds and people kept there forever. There were rows of beds in very large wards, quite a few wards that would segregate the women from the men and also the more acute patients so that they could be in a more calm environment. But those patients didn't spend all day in bed or in the wards. They spent a lot of their time out of bed doing things during the daytime. They had occupational therapy or moral therapy, as it is referred to, where patients were helping to run the mental hospital. So they were working in the gardens, working on the farm that was part of the hospital, cleaning the wards, also working in the kitchens. But there were also workshops that they could work in. So they did carpentry and they made things. The ladies were able to make clothes and bedding for other patients. So they were quite industrious. They were moving around quite a bit. And the theory was that that helped them to recover those that were eventually discharged. And what was the standard of medical care in a hospital like that at that time? There weren't a lot of medicines given to patients. The medicines are only recorded very briefly in the accounts as about a pound's worth each week. And it doesn't tell you the details of them, but... Other accounts have talked about sedation and also sometimes medicines that nauseate patients so that while they're feeling sick, they're not able to be disruptive. Most of the time, though, patients didn't receive any kind of medicine. The segregation from society and just the supposedly calm environment and the beautiful grounds were supposed to be enough to be able to help them improve. As a patient in the hospital at that time, did I have a hope of discharge or was I expecting to be there for years and years? It really depended what you had and how you behaved within the hospital and how your condition improved. A lot of patients were discharged improved although some patients were still in there for a very long time. Some of the patients I looked at that were in there during the First World War were still there in the 1939 census. Other patients, though, were discharged, especially in 1915. They seemed to discharge quite a few so that they could make room for people with more severe mental illness. And some patients, unfortunately, passed away and were buried in the grounds. Some patients also escaped, um, so they were discharged, not improved, although one gentleman who I found was a forester before he came to the asylum, he escaped and was missing from the asylum for 
two weeks. So he was marked as missing, discharged, not improved. And then he was still there in 1939, so they obviously found him and brought him back. Throughout the First World War, what was the funding of the hospital at Powick? Local patients were still funded by their parish or by the workhouse that had sent them, which was from their parish. Patients that came from other asylums outside of the county, such as those from Winston Green and Northampton, they were funded by those asylums, so they were charged a slightly higher rate for out-county patients. And in 1917, the Board of Control brought in a new category of patient called service patients. So the military patients had been arriving at POIC since the beginning of the war, and it wasn't until 1917 that the Board of Control decided to give them a new category. And at that point, they were treated slightly differently. They had better privileges, and they were paid for by the Board of Control so there was an additional two shillings, sixpence for each military patient. Better privileges such as? They definitely had uniforms. There's a note in the committee meeting minutes where they're talking about buying new material to be able to give them a different uniform to the other patients. They were also given proper burials. Some of the patients at Poic were given pauper burials but the military patients were to have proper burials and proper funeral services. And theoretically, they were supposed to be kept in different wards to the other patients, but there were only ever about 30 patients at a time that were military patients at POIC, so they probably didn't have their own ward, but they might have been together in a corner of one larger ward. And were patients regularly visited by families or were a lot of them just abandoned? There are a few notes about people being visited by family, but we don't have a visitor book and we don't have any letters from patients here. But patients at other asylums were certainly visited by family regularly, so there's no reason they wouldn't have been. But the families didn't have to contribute to their upkeep? No, the patients that were at POIC were mainly working class patients. So theoretically, the families wouldn't have been able to afford their care. POIC is itself a fairly large community and it's very close to the city of Worcester. What was the attitude of the surrounding population, the people of Worcester, to having POIC there? I don't know in specific terms, but a lot of the staff came from the local area, either from Poic or from Worcester. So there were about 100 staff working on the wards and their friends and families would have had obviously a, a positive attitude towards it because it was employing their family. Outside of that, I think people wouldn't have thought about mental hospitals the idea was that it was far from the population, so people were out of sight, out of mind, and perhaps you could just forget about the people that were in there rather than worrying about them. And the people who were admitted, were they drawn from the local area or what sort of area was covered? They're mostly from Worcestershire. There are some from outside of the county because... 
they were transferred between different mental hospitals and you could charge a higher amount if they came from a different county. They were mostly coming from parishes and the parish was paying the bill for them. So that bill would go out to the parish and then somebody from the parish would come and check on that individual or wherever they came from. So if they came from a workhouse, the guardians from the workhouse would come to check on that person. And there's a lot of visitor records that are written by those people that are visiting to check on the conditions there to make sure that everything's okay. As you've just mentioned records, I gather from a historian's viewpoint that the records of POIC are fascinating and very, very large. Could you describe for us the material that you based your research on? Most of the records are held at Worcestershire Archive in Archaeology Service, which is based at the Hive in Worcester. A lot of them are accessible. There's annual accounts, which would have been published in the newspapers, and committee meeting minutes, which record only the end of conversations in committee meetings. And those are held for POIC for the entire period that it was in existence. There's also patient records, so a lot of those can be accessed. The ones that I looked at, I had to ask for additional permission because there's a 100-year rule, so that anything that fell within 100 years, you can't look at because it's very sensitive information. The records I actually looked at go up to about the 1920s within one volume, so it meant that I had to have permission to look at those. And some of the male records are missing for the period that I wanted to look at. So up till March 1916, I could look at. And then from then till the end of the war, the male patient records are somehow missing. But otherwise, there's a full run of them, which seems very mysterious that there's one volume missing. You produced a really fascinating document called War Worry, which looks at poet during the First World War. That's a new term to me. Where does it come from and how is it reflected in what was going on at the time of the First World War? I found the term in newspaper reports that were talking about coroner's inquests into suicides during the First World War. So in different newspapers around the country, but specifically there was one in Worcestershire where a young man from Feckenham hung himself. The inquest is talking about they died with war worry. That was the cause for them committing suicide. And that term gets picked up then from the newspapers and used by different companies who are selling medicines. So Hall's Wine being one that starts selling itself specifically to help with the symptoms of war worry, the anxiety and the stress. So if you have heart palpitations, you're feeling sick or having headaches, they can help you with that. And they were selling the product before the war, but they changed their advertising during the war to fit in with this new term that was being used. A doctor's word. I have frequently prescribed Hall's wine for patients who needed more than drugs alone could offer. Hall's wine has supplied that want and the results have justified my recommendation. 
Today in this country, there are thousands, run down, convalescent, overwrought with anxiety, grief, or business worries, to whom a short course of Hall's wine would bring health, strength, and confidence. Are there any patients that actually reflect this condition of war worry? There's a number with really good accounts in the patient records. One elderly patient who'd been in POIC since before the war claimed to be the cause of the war. And another admitted in May 1915 claimed there was no war and he would be able to stop it if there was. There's another gentleman who thinks he has aeroplanes and explosives at his disposal and that he could lay telephone wire around the world in a day. And these feel like they're picking up things that they've seen in the newspapers as part of their delusions. So there would have been telegraph wires laid around the countries and there would have been explosives and aeroplanes. But the fact that he thinks that he's in charge of them is quite interesting. Looking at it overall, what impact did the war have on the way POIC was run and the sort of patients that were being admitted? Yes, the number of patients rose during the First World War from about 1,000 to about 1,300 at its peak in 1916. And the kind of patients will have changed during that time. A large number of patients came from other asylums as they became hospitals for wounded soldiers. So about 217 came from Winston Green in Birmingham, 50 came from Northampton, and several came in smaller numbers from other asylums so that they could move their patients around and make better use of their facilities. So the patients that were arriving at POIC might have had higher needs. A lot of the people from Winston Green were more difficult to control than the ones that were already at POIC. And the way they're described is they have a lot of delusions, they move around a lot, they're very excited, they might hoard things, or some of them refuse to eat, so they're causing a lot of extra work for the staff. At the same time, there's a lot less staff During the First World War, nationally, about 42% of staff working in mental hospitals served with the armed services. And that was no exception at POIC. We lost a lot of staff who served in different services. Mental health nursing was not a restricted profession. I'm not sure whether it was, but a lot volunteered at the outbreak of war, so they didn't get to a point where they needed to ask to stay. In about 1917, there was one particular doctor who'd been asking to volunteer for quite a while. Poor Dr Fenton wasn't allowed to go, the committee wouldn't allow him to go, and they asked several times that he was allowed to be kept. But finally, in 1917, he went. So even the the medical staff that were more qualified still weren't allowed to be kept by the mental hospital. So I suppose they weren't a reserved occupation. And did POIC admit patients from the armed services? Yes. Very soon after the beginning of the war, the first ex-military patient arrived But the next one didn't come until about December of 1914. So they were quite spaced out. 
by the time the mail records end in March 1916, there'd been about 11 that I can identify that had come from different armed services that were moved mainly from military hospitals. So they came from Netley in Southampton, Aldershot and from Moss Side in Liverpool. But some of them also came either from home because they'd already been sent home or even from police stations where they'd been found wandering and brought in. And were these largely the classic shell shock victims that we see on old newsreels? No, the committee decided not to take shell-shocked victims, although the Board of Control appears to have made a decision themselves anyway not to send shell-shocked victims to county asylums. By the end of the war, there were 48 special hospitals for shell-shocked soldiers so that they were kept in specialist facilities so that they could be cared for in a different way. The soldiers that were arriving at Poick were just unfit for service. So one in particular, his record says that he was likely to be an inefficient soldier. So he was discharged for that reason. And all of the others that arrived at Poic were likely to have been discharged for the same reason. They'd only served for days, one of them for 71 days. Some of them made it to France, but not for very long before they were found to be inefficient soldiers and were discharged and sent home. And most of the reports I've read about mental health in the First World War have focused on the armed services. You didn't. You looked at the civilian population as well. Did you notice a major difference in the patterns of disease, the amount of illness that was being admitted during the war itself, compared with before the war? Among the civilian population, a lot of the records don't mention anything about the war, but there were a number of records that really stood out. About 11 of the male records mentioned the war as a main reason that they have delusions, and that's the reason why they've ended up at Poic. So... Some of them might describe how they think they can end the war or that they don't believe there's a war because there's not enough soldiers in the streets or one of them was admitted because his mental health definitely went downhill at the announcement of the war and he was just very worried and he couldn't go to work anymore. So it shows that the civilians were definitely affected by the war and that seemed as interesting, if not more interesting, than the military patients. It's something that's not really been written about in as much detail before, perhaps because the records haven't been available to be able to look at. And it meant that it was finding stories that hadn't been found before that seemed quite important. So we all know the stories about shell-shocked soldiers and perhaps lesser-known the soldiers that weren't shell-shocked but were affected by war in some way, that later claimed disability pensions. There was a large number of those. But we haven't talked as much about how civilians were affected because it feels like people were just expected to carry on and to be industrious 
and women were expected to go out to work and take on roles. But nobody's written very much about how they were affected, how the grief and the worry of war actually made people quite mentally ill. Working with these records as a historian, looking at them for the first time, how did you react? It was exciting to be able to look at them. A little sad because some of the people in the records are quite poorly, but also some of them are described in very nice detail by the staff. Some of the male patients who have delusions that are clearly affected by the war, where the war is part of what they're describing. The patients have detailed that really nicely. So it shows that the staff were interested in what the patients were saying, even though at this period the medical textbooks advised that you didn't join in with people's delusions, you would deny delusions so even though they were being written down, the staff may have then turned around to people and said, that's silly, that's not the truth. Which today is something that if people have dementia, for instance, you wouldn't deny their delusions anymore. You let them carry it through to help them try and deal with them instead of just telling them it's not true. What was your sense of the level of empathy between the staff and the patients? Certainly the staff appear to like some of the patients more than others. It felt like if they could control them, if they were well-behaved, perhaps if they were neat in appearance, even charming, some of them offered jokingly to bathe the nurses, but only the pretty ones. Some of these had really detailed notes and it felt like the nursing staff liked those patients, whereas other patient notes were quite curt and short and just described patients that were difficult to control, sullen, morose, or difficult to talk to. They're not described in as much detail because perhaps the staff spent more time having to look after them. I understand that there was a large element of the staff that were actually volunteers rather than what we regard as professionals today. Yes, quite a few during the First World War were inexperienced and unqualified. Some of them might have been older people um, being roped in to go back to work because they were replacing staff that had volunteered to join the services. So there were certainly less experienced staff and less qualified staff during the First World War. Surprisingly, most of the records for women don't mention the war at all. Do you think there's a significance behind that? I think that one particular patient record highlights that there was more to that. I hadn't found any reference to the war in any of the female records and then suddenly I found one. She's a 15-year-old that's just been admitted. She's had a condition since she was born. And now her parents can't control her anymore. And when they admit her, they say that she doesn't know the day of the week nor anything about the war. And that one record, that one mention, suggests to me that 
everyone else was talking about the war, but somehow it didn't get written down in the female records. So do you think it was just such generality that it was taken for granted? Yes, perhaps. Maybe it wasn't affecting their delusions as much as the male patients, or maybe the male staff that were writing down the records didn't think it was part of what the female patients should be worrying about. It's hard to know without the information being there. There are a couple of patients from Mossside in Liverpool, which I think particularly caught your attention when you were doing this research. Yes, two patients were brought from Mossside Hospital in Liverpool. They both served in the front line before coming back to England. And they were treated by staff at POIC because they originally came from Worcestershire. But they were treated quite differently. One of them complained a lot. The patient records show he was... Worried about his belongings, nagged the attendants, was quarrelsome and hoarded things. But the other soldier, who was left retarded after he'd had a fit, was described as... Quiet, useful to staff, willing to work around the ward. And he's described kindly by the staff because of that. Can you give us a sense, an impression of what you felt about these patients and their care at the end of it? A lot of the patients had some wonderful stories to tell. And the staff obviously thought kindly of them because they documented those stories, even if some of them were quite deluded. A lot of the patients were discharged, recovered, and even though some still remained in the asylum till after the First World War, they were described in such kind ways by the staff that I felt that they were easy to like And it made the research quite easy because it was nice to read. It wasn't as sad as I feared it might be to look at these records. Sarah, thank you very much indeed for giving us insights into what I think is generally a little explored and obviously very fascinating area of the First World War, looking well beyond the trenches, the terrible films we see of shell shock. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. More information about the Worcestershire World War 100 project can be found on their website, www.worcestershire.co.uk. And you can discover more fascinating films, podcasts and articles about the First World War and the home front in the West Midlands at our website, www.historywm.com.